the mystery of the cross, which we are here to ponder tonight, is a many-splendored thing. It is inexhaustible in its fullness, and the church has understood it in a variety of ways, none of which is complete in itself, none of which is able to be isolated from the others. So, for example, we could, and we often do, speak of the cross, especially in the West, in legal categories. Right? Jesus takes the penalty for our sins. He substitutes for us. He bears the curse for our breaking the covenant. It's all legal terms. Or we can think of the, the, the cross, and this is more popular in the East, we can think of it in terms of this drama of Christ paradoxically defeating the powers by dying, triumphing over the demonic, the principalities and powers at the very moment he looks defeated. And then the cross gets narrated as a kind of cosmic drama. But tonight, from 1 Peter 2, we're going to look at the cross from what I think is a neglected perspective. And from a vantage point which touches close, perhaps too close, uh, to home for us. Namely, the text is about the cross as an example, as a way of life. The cross as a form of being in the world. The cross as the shape of our lives. And Peter begins here by addressing slaves. These would be household servants, generally poor, although not all of them were poor. But they would lack anything like basic civil rights, anything we would consider freedom. And they're told to be subject to their masters with all respect. And so so submission here in this context is not weakness, right? It's not spineless conformity. This is an act of piety toward God. And it's to be given, Peter says, not only to good and considerate masters, right, but also to those who are harsh or unjust. The word Peter uses here is bent, bent, twisted. Who hasn't had a harsh or irritating, unreasonable boss. I can say that. Joanne Weber's not here tonight, right? But, right? Who hasn't faced harsh or unreasonable or bent civil authorities? Like, submission in that case, Peter says, is especially commendable. Oh, wait a minute. That's maybe not the lesson we want to draw from the cross. Submission in that case is especially commendable. Something which shows grace, he says. Something which is a pleasing aroma to God. Something that we do, he says, because we are mindful or conscious of God. Something that arises out of this God consciousness. This interior freedom that enables a person to transform the irritations and the provocations and the sufferings of life. And so Peter continues and says, you know, if you receive a beating for doing what's wrong, what virtue is that? What's commendable is suffering for what is good. Now, I think if we're honest, this whole line of exhortation cuts pretty deeply against the grain of our natural inclinations. Right? In fact, we often fail pretty miserably at tests which are much easier than this one. 
Right? We don't like it when we're provoked by anyone, much less an authority. Right? Sometimes all it takes right, is, is somebody driving five miles below the speed limit in front of you. That's it. That's the threshold for provocation. We're naturally, at least many of us, quick, quick to anger at the smallest slights, at perceived oversights. We're also walking factories of self-justification. We have our rights after all. Yet, right, the Apostle Paul tells us, love, God is love, and love is the heart of Christian being, ethics, right? Love is not provoked. What an astonishing statement. Love is not provoked. It suffers all things. It bears all things. It keeps no record of wrongs. It bears up under unjust treatment, be it small or be it great. So it turns out this little piece of ethical advice from Peter is just him following the master. He learned it from the one who said this. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other cheek. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. If you love those who love you, what credit is that? Jesus says, even sinners do that. So this teaching from Peter, what I want you to see, this is not on the margins of Christian ethics. In our circles, we tend to think, that's fine if you're a Mennonite, you know? If you're a pacifist or an Anabaptist, well, we're reformed. We punch people back. Right? This is what Christ-likeness looks like. So, like, back to the text. In verse 21, Peter says, To this you were called. To what? To unjust suffering and bearing up under it. Can we have another calling, please, Peter? But this is not a calling we want. No one talks about the Christian calling this way. No one uses vocation language like this. To this you were called? This is a vocation, Peter says. Not resignation to blind fate. Right? Not a sign of defeat. Why is this a calling for us? He says, it is so because Christ suffered for you. This is our calling because it's what, he, it's what our Lord Jesus did. See, sometimes the things are the most blindingly obvious. We miss them. You're called to suffer unjustly and bear up under it because here in the cross we have the towering instance of the suffering servant of a beaten slave bearing, submitting himself to unjust suffering of the most horrific kind. And for an age constantly obsessed with its rights, right, with power, with leverage, with counting, with measuring, with remembering, remembering slights and contesting and contesting and contesting for what we are due. The cross can only seem like an absurdity. It, I mean, it's a, it, sounds, it must sound to someone with this mindset of defending their rights at every turn, like a kind of slave mentality. 
Maybe even it's a form of masochism, but it's certainly beneath the dignity of red-blooded people who, if they're going to serve at all, are going to choose whom and when and where and on what terms and under what legal regime their service will be rendered. Notice, we bear with unjust suffering because Christ suffered for us. And the next words, to this point, beloved, I'm just introducing the topic. The next words are the heart of this sermon. Christ suffered for us, leaving you an example. And the example is not, you should try and be nice to people. Leaving us an example. You see what I mean? You've got one one theory, constantly talking about the church, uh, the, the cross in legal language. Jesus died for our sin. Another, constantly talking about the, the cross as routing the demonic powers. This is the one you don't hear. Talking about the cross as a moral and ethical example for the very shape of our existence in the world. He left us an example so that we might follow in his steps. Could we get another example? Maybe when he cleanses the temple, can we have that as an example? No, you can't. Only Jesus gets to cleanse the temple because his body is the new temple. There's things Jesus does you can't do. You're not called to imitate them. But public suffering and dying and shame and weakness and bearing up at the cross, that is the example. Those are the steps that we're to walk in. Right? But we, see, if we, we love the cross... If we're talking about what Jesus did for us, or if we're talking about what he alone could do, or the benefits that accrue to us from his sacrifice, we can and we should glory in that aspect of the cross. But Peter here says that the cross, right, not just, you know, it's not just an abstract suffering, the cross has unjust public suffering, right, at the hands of the established public political authorities. That is a moral school, a lesson, an example, a pair of footsteps for you to walk in. A sketch, the word Peter uses here is this idea that it's a sketch or a pattern for the Christian life. The cross and going the way of the cross is not an aspect of the Christian life. Like, you can't just, like, dabble in the cross. Yeah, I dabble in the cross. It's the form or the mold or the shape of Christian existence. And this means for us, the cross is never merely out there for Christians. It's something that we're called into the mystery and the darkness and the glory of it. Right? The cross is not a way of life for the church. It is the way of life for the church. But it's quite remarkable that we can talk about ethics and we can talk about prayer and we can talk about ministry and we can talk about this and we can talk about that and we can talk about politics without ever mentioning it. Without, without ever even asking the question of what being shaped by that might do for what, we're, what is under discussion. Right? 
Right? Here's a question nobody asked for the last two years. I've got dozens of them. I'll give you one right now. What would our public political witness look like if it really matched the pattern of Jesus' public political witness? So, Peter is saying, you have to trace these footsteps all the way to Calvary. And then he draws on the portrait of the suffering servant, which we heard read from Isaiah 53. And he says this. He's going to fill this out for you. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. That's the first thing this entails. When he suffered, he made no threats. No threats? We threaten. We lawyer up. We buy weapons. We fight fire with fire. We respond on our blogs. We cannot let these injustices stand. We correct the record. Right? We correct the record. We fight back. We watch Braveheart for the seventh time. Jesus, Jesus, nonviolent, non-retaliatory, holy, silent resistance. What kind of strategy is that? Love toward the enemy, blessing, prayer for, turning the other cheek, to the betrayal of Judas, to the false accusations of the religious leaders, the priests, to the cowardly injustice of Pilate, to the bloodthirsty cries of the mob, right? to the legal show trial that he undergoes. Again, as the suffering slave of Isaiah 53, here's the prophet again. Peter's drawing on this passage. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He doesn't raise his voice in the streets, Isaiah says. If that's the standard, and it is the standard, then a lot of our activism is absurd. Un or non-redemptive. Utterly unconformed to the pattern of the cross of Christ. As I said, we haven't even asked the question. We don't even ask the question what it might look like. At his trial and at his execution, Jesus, the just one, does not seek to win the argument. He did not call on legions of angels. He didn't seek to humiliate his opponents. He sought no justice for himself. Right Before the authorities, whether they're political authorities or religious authorities... At the pavement whipping block where he was lashed with cords riddled with pieces of bone. Right? In, the, in the face of the jeering and spitting and the mockery and the taunts of the thief, he had one defense. Majestic silence. But deep down, we really think, we really think, oh, that's, that's okay for him. That's really just for him. But Peter's saying in this text, no, in doing that, he left you an example as to what your public witness to injustice should look like. Respond in kind, 
revile, retaliate? That's exactly what Jesus didn't do. That's one side of the pattern we're called to imitate. What he did do, positively, the text says, is this. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So he who was unjustly given over gave himself up to the judge of the world, right? forsaking personal retaliation, forsaking force, forsaking all the means that were in his power, knowing that just vengeance was in the hands of his heavenly father. He waits for vindication at the resurrection. That's what this phrase means, that he kept entrusting himself in his passion to the one who will judge justly. It means he was waiting for vindication in the resurrection. It means his perspective on his suffering was eschatological. Our perspective is we need victory now. Which is a horrific scandal, by the way. When you have a church that thinks it's going to be publicly vindicated before Jesus was publicly vindicated. Jesus was publicly vindicated in the eschatological act of bodily resurrection from the dead. That's when you'll be vindicated. That's when the martyrs will be vindicated. That's when all the Christian dead awaiting that moment will be vindicated. We'll be vindicated when he's vindicated, not before. This is an example for us. But it is important to say, and I'm going to say it now, that of course he's not merely an example. His suffering is unique. It does do what no human suffering can do. I don't want anyone to be confused about that. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, Peter says. There are lots of crosses littering the Roman landscape that Friday. Only one where sins were being borne away. So this is unjust suffering at its most grotesque and at its most glorious. Not only suffering as innocent, but suffering which bears the guilt and shame of you and I. He does this, Peter says. He bears our sins in his body so that we might die to sin and we might live to righteousness. Now, it's important not to lose the thread here. When Peter says he did this so that we might die to sin, of course he means all sin. But the context would hint that certain types of sin are particularly in mind. Right? The sins that servants and those suffering unjustly would be tempted to. The sins of self-justification and retaliation, of reviling, of threatening in the midst of the provocations of life. He died to those things so we could die to those things. And when we speak of living to righteousness, the heart of what's in view here is his righteous meekness, his lowliness, his suffering and silent trust of the resurrection at the hands of the just judge of the world. By those wounds, Peter says, you have been healed. Again, from Isaiah 53. But it's especially poignant here, beloved. It's poignant because Peter is writing to battered servants about another battered servant. Right? Only because of who this one is, these wounds are different. 
Right? These wounds are different. Try, try and catch the shock of this as if you were hearing it for the first time. Right? It is the wounds of a beaten slave which are the source of your healing. What an absurd religion this must be. It's the wounds of a beaten slave which are the source of your healing. The beaten slave becomes the great physician by being wounded. So what Isaiah foresaw, Peter witnessed with his own eyes, and now he's writing about it. And we will not bring healing to the world without bearing about the wounds of our cross. Paul says, we are constantly, always, he says, carrying about in our body the dying of Jesus. But there's not an hour or a day you can take off for this. As I said, this is not like a feature of the Christian life. This is the Christian life. We are always, Paul says, carrying about this death, these wounds in our very body, in our very bones, so that the life of Jesus could be manifested to others and manifested in our mortal flesh. Now, I've told this story before. If you're at Westminster, you've heard it, but I'm going to tell it again because I think it's fitting, a fitting way to conclude here. So some of you know this. It's the story of a Korean pastor named Yang Won Sun, and I'll tell you why I tell this story in a minute. In 1948, in South Korea, a band of communists took over the town and they executed his two older sons, Matthew and John. And the the boys died calling on their persecutors to embrace the gospel. And later, a young man named Chai Sun was identified as the one who actually pulled the trigger, fired the shots, and he was ordered to be executed. And Pastor Sun, the father of the dead boys, requested that the charges be dropped and that Chai Sun be released into his custody for adoption. During the hearing, the boys had a 13-year-old sister named Rachel. She went in and she testified in support of her father's request. Eventually, the court released Chai Sun, the killer, who became the son of this pastor and a follower of Christ. Pastor, pastor son said this. He said, I thank God that he has given me the love to seek to convert and to adopt as my son the enemy who killed my dear boys. That is what cruciformity can look like in the face of unjust suffering. That is following in the steps of the suffering servant. And beloved, I'm going to say something that's hard now. And I don't say it as someone who thinks I'm any better than anyone in this room. But we tend to think that that kind of thing is for heroic Christians. Well, I could never do that. Or that's like some elite level of ethical attainment. I want you to see that. This is not particular. It is not heroic. It is entailed in the gospel. It is exactly what you are called to in the text of 1 Peter 2. To not do it would be a form of disobedience, right? You cannot say, look, he killed my kids. I am not adopting him as my son and forgiving him. I'll just live the normal American Christian life, thank you very much. But whatever this special way of the cross Christian life is, that's not for me. Listen, listen to this. 
The, the pastor did exactly what God did for you and me. We killed God's son. He forgave us and adopted it as his sons. So like, this is not something off the beaten path. This is what Christianity is. This is what Christianity does. This is how it forms and shapes ourselves in the world. Because after all, are we not following the one who said of his own murderers, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do? Do you realize how far our public witness is from this? Are you suffering unjustly? Or are you wounded? Are you under unjust authorities? Are your rights threatened? Are you in danger of losing some things? Peter will not coddle us here. But he will give us effective medicine. He says you've been left in the cross an example. Follow it. Imitate it. There are footsteps right there. Jesus' spiked and pierced footsteps. Walk in them. Walk in them. Amen.